Hello and welcome to Produce Talks, the CPMA podcast. I am your host and CPMA Education Manager, Jason Gorley. Doing something a little bit different this month, I'm going to turn the mic over to Ron LeMaire, the president of CPMA, as he sits down with some members of the media that cover our industry to talk about some of the major stories that happened over the last year. On the podcast today, we have the first half of their discussion where they tackle issues like sustainability and food trends and some of the things that are affecting the industry today and will for the coming year. I'm going to turn things over now to Ron and he'll start off the conversation. As 2015 draws to a close, CPMA wanted to take time to reflect on some of the events and trends that have and are continuing to have an effect on the produce industry. On this podcast, we're fortunate enough to be joined by some members of the media who report on our industry. The broad scope of what they see, hear, and report on gives them a unique perspective on some major topics affecting produce. Normally, the ones doing the interviewing, today we turn the tables and ask them the questions about what is happening and what they see affecting the industry moving forward. Firstly, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us today. We know that you are all very busy, and we appreciate the time you've taken to contribute to this discussion. Secondly, let's find out who we have around the table today. Hi, this is John Grow. I'm the editor of the Produce News. And this is Tom Clark, national editor for The Packer. I'm Karen Davidson, editor of The Grower. This is Matthew Oak here. I'm the editor of Fresh Fruit Portal. And Karen James, I'm the executive editor of Grocery Business. Each of our guests have been asked to speak to a specific topic, and then we'll open it up to the floor for any additional thoughts from the others. We'll start with John and sustainability. This is a topic that has risen to prominence with industry and also with consumers. Over the past year, what are some of the themes or major topics that you have seen emerging with respect to fresh fruit and vegetables? Thank you, Ron. It's a pleasure to be with you all here today. I think sustainability, when the term first came into vogue several years ago, it was kind of an open term. People weren't quite sure what to make of it. And I think to a degree it's still that way. It means different things to different people. In the most basic terms, sustainable operation is one that continues to better itself and looks to be a good steward of the land, minimize impacts on the environment, and looks to treat its workers properly, all while maintaining profitability. But uh, if a company is not checking off all those boxes, does it make it a not a sustainable company? I don't think so. I think sustainability is a journey more than anything, and I think companies continually strive to improve their operations and can be considered sustainable. But that said, I think some parameters have been established for sustainability in the form of third-party certifications, And these certifications take into account such things as implementing best practices for the environment, social and quality performance, increasing energy efficiency, reducing greenhouse gases, optimizing land use, among other things. And, in fact, I think some of the larger U.S. retailers now are requiring their suppliers to have some kind of a sustainable certification to continue supplying their stores. Interestingly, one of the things that I point to as a model of sustainability is largely based in Canada, and that's some greenhouse operations. I think if you look at those, they check many of the boxes towards sustainability, one being from a land efficiency standpoint, you look at the amount of production that a greenhouse operation can produce Compared to a field-grown operation, you know, it's, it's much less acreage than they can produce the same amount of product. 
Also, just by their nature, they're forced to maximize their efficiency on the inputs and to reduce waste and maximize their production. So I think all of those things go toward a sustainable operation. And also, I think many people would consider reducing food miles, especially among the consumers. They look at locally grown food as a better option as far as taking care of the environment. And I think that's true to some extent, but many of the Canadian greenhouse operations are starting to open satellite operations in the U.S., for example, in Ohio, Michigan, Virginia, Texas, to name a few states. And I think they're doing that to bring the product closer to their end users and also just to have better profitability but instead of having to ship the product and, and increases freshness too. And one other example I can think of with sustainability is occurring in California. And as everybody knows, there's a horrible drought situation on the West Coast right now. And I think the producers in California have had to really take a hard look at their operations and to maximize the efficiencies there, you know, when an acre foot of water is costing what it does today, it's incumbent upon them to really look at how to better manage their operations to, to get the best return for their products. So I think it's, it's really just whether it's installing a solar energy installation to help defray energy costs or to invest in state-of-the-art irrigation systems to reduce the amount of water that's necessary to grow their products. I think all these things are are just examples of what some of the uh, producers now are having to having to do to be sustainable and also to you know be profitable. In summary, I think really sustainability is really the new norm, and companies, whether they realize it or not, are having to be sustainable to continue operating. You hit on a couple key topics there, and one of those pieces is that combination of economics mm -hmm. and the economic benefits and uh, that environmental and public perception around the uh, need for sustainability. So you're seeing that use of, and realization of the economic benefits of, within sustainability across industry? Yes, I think so. Um, I think growers of all type are implementing some of these practices for their, their own economic benefit and, and also just in response to what their consumers are requesting. You know, I mean, consumers today are more educated than ever. They want to know where their products are coming from. They want to know how the workers were treated. They want to know what inputs have been used. So I think it's a combination of, of maximizing profitability and responding to what consumers are asking for. Now, I'd like to open it up to the group. Is there anyone that uh, would like to add anything to the sustainability discussion? Tom Karst with the Packer. One thing I wonder is if the industry as a group or as a association in some regional senses, I guess, needs to tell the story of sustainability to give it a, a bigger impact for the consumer because if individual companies take out sustainability, and they should to save water, to save energy, that helps them. But I wonder for the broader good of the industry if there needs to be more of an effort to communicate that to the consumer. Tom, I think that's a great point. I know in 2014, CPMA released a series of case studies on sustainability that the industry is undertaking. And, and even since that time, those are slightly dated. There's a lot of new innovative sustainability platforms and models that John alluded to. And I know there's others in the market that are quite exciting that the consumer definitely is not aware of. So very good point. Karen Davis from The Grower. Certainly here in Canada, sustainability, I think, is in its very early stages at the producer level. But I would say that the potato growers appear to be the most advanced in terms of those initiatives. 
due to the leadership of key processors, such as McCain. So it's processors that are driving that movement really on a North American basis. An interesting point is that Canada Gap, our leading food safety program, is actually cooperating with the North American Potato Sustainability Initiative. They are going to be offering verification audit in the, um, I think, the 2016 Potato IPM survey. Karen James from Grocery Business here. I would add that at that end of the supply chain, I think marvelous advances have been made in the last few years, partly out of necessity and partly uh, because it's the right thing to do. But I think at the store level, more needs to be done. I think food waste is a huge, huge scourge on the industry and so much food thrown away. We're talking a bit more about that on, when we get to technology, but that effort needs to be extended throughout the entire supply chain, and we're not quite there yet. I have another question following up on that relative to sustainability, but more targeted. There's a term that is being used more and more, and the term is social license. And generally, social license can be defined as the ongoing level of stakeholder acceptance and approval for a particular project, business, or industry on how they conduct their operations. From a produce perspective, this can bring added pressure to our industry, especially uh, when you look at our supply chain and our product lines. So moving forward, do you see this added level of public perception impacting how our business operates? John Grove from the Produce News here. I think anytime there's more focus on, on something, it forces everyone to be more conscious about how they're doing things. So I, I think it would have an, an upside to the industry to make sure that everyone is, is doing things properly and, and, and efficiently. I guess the basic comment is, do we have consumer confidence? To answer that, yes, absolutely. I think consumers are very trustful of the produce industry in particular, but the food system in general. Despite some lapses over the years, which are understandable given given the size in Canada, $100 billion industry, a remarkable job is done, and I think consumers recognize that. And they're voting with their dollars. Consumption of produce continues to grow by double digits. The, the proof is in the, in the apple pudding, as they would say. And I am briefly interrupting the conversation to bring you a message from Les Mallard, our CPMA membership chair. Les, I'm wondering if you can let me know some of the benefits that Chiquita has with being a member of CPMA. Thanks, Jason, for this opportunity. The CPMA value equation spans many areas of interest for Chiquita. However, one of the areas of interest I want to key in on is the CPMA annual convention. The convention offers touchpoint opportunities with all the major players in the Canadian produce industry in various settings, whether business or social. No other produce function in Canada offers the scope the CPM Annual Convention offers. Having this is a tremendous value for our organization. Thanks, Les. And now, back to the conversation. Tom, I have a question for you. I'd like to turn to the topic of food safety and regulation. Over the past year, we have witnessed an increased focus in this area, mostly due to the regulatory modernization work that's been underway in Canada and the U.S. market. But how do you see activity has happened in food safety and regulation over the last year? How do you see this impact business in North America? I, I think it's a, a big question, obviously, and the parallel tracks of the U.S. And, and Canada in terms of food safety regulation, I think, is often overlooked as well. I, I think that perhaps a lot of people aren't aware of what's going on in Canada with development of food safety regulations. I was talking with David Gombas of United Fresh about 
about the food safety rules in the U.S., and he mentioned that water testing of uh, irrigation water is going to be a, a big issue for growers. While the final produce safety rule gives commodity groups or universities uh, four years to do research and come up with some potential alternative testing methodology, at the end of the day, complying with the water testing requirements of the produce safety rule will be a big challenge. I think that's that's an issue that we're going to have to watch. And also, what FDA said about the farm facility distinction will result in many operations handling only raw agricultural commodities that will be under the preventive controls rule. So David Gamba said that will mean that many of those operations don't understand the regulatory liability that is headed their way. Even with the expanded farm definition, there's going to be a lot of facilities that will be under the preventive controls rule. So that's something to watch as well. Um, and then, of course, importers also may not understand the responsibilities that are ahead for them. Now before you know, an importer can bring a product in, they will have to do a hazard analysis on the particular commodity and find a supplier that has been audited to the produce rule or to the preventive controls rule. Importers will need a copy of that audit and will have to evaluate the audit report to show that the supplier complies with the applicable rules. And, and then they'll have to have that documentation on hand if the FDA wants to visit and determine if they're doing what they need to do. So uh, a lot of a lot of moving parts here, and a lot of them are still a little understood, I think, and including by this trade journalist, a lot to digest. But I think you know those are three potential issues that will carry forward into next year. Tom, as a follow-up to that, how do you see the industry or companies being prepared? What can they do? I think that, you know, like even here in the next few days, I think there's another web seminar that is going to be offered jointly by United Fresh and PMA, and I know CPMA is also involved with those educational events. So I think that's part of the, the process of just learning together on what responsibilities are ahead. I think that's a, a big deal, of course, in, in that whole process of key questions of, that, of, of the association experts of government officials when they're available. That's going to be part of the, the process. But I think the culture of a, of a company, the food safety culture, is going to have to be closely examined as well because in order to comprehend all the, all the rules and regulations coming our way, I think that there's got to be a, a real awareness at all levels of the company that you know, this is a shared responsibility. I'll open this next question up to the entire group. First of all, are there any additional thoughts on how food safety and regulation regarding fresh fruit and vegetables has changed, how we do business over the past year, and also how it's influencing the future? But also that question around how best can we prepare? Uh, Karen Davidson from The Grower. I'd very much like to respond to what Tom has just talked about, the culture of food safety. Very interesting point in that two weeks ago, a not-for-profit organization called Food Safe Canada was announced. Members are the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, University of Guelph, Canadian Meat Council, and others. But the main point that they're making is that there really needs to be this change in the culture of food safety. Certainly from a grower perspective, I think they see it as a cost of doing business, but government and the food chain see food safety as a way to do business better. And so what they're suggesting is that they're going to have linkages with various partners for consistent food safety training so that everybody gets on the same page. And I know that concept is going to take time, but I think it's a really major step forward in how we think about education on food safety, the concept of food protection. And that uh, concept is really about uh, protecting the nutrients in what farmers produce.
Matt York here from Fresh Fruit Portal. I just thought I'd like to add uh, something from the, the exporter perspective as uh, our company is based in, in Chile and we, we deal with a lot of uh, international exporters who trade fruit in the Canadian and, and US markets. Given a lot of importers uh, may not understand their responsibilities, things are, are even tougher down here. I get the sense that Chilean producers and Chilean exporters, if they are in close contact with their importers, are not sure what's going on, and actually a lot of them have really no idea what it's going to imply for them. So on the other hand, to keep things moving smoothly from an import perspective, uh, perhaps we should think of ways that we can better communicate this to them and have a closer contact of the regulations between importers and their counterparts overseas. We'll move on for a question to Karen Davidson. I'd like to talk a little bit about food trends. Karen, if we look at the history of the produce industry, there are a few different trends that are apparent. Are there food trends that have become apparent over the past year, and have they influenced produce? Well, thanks very much for the question, Ron. Yes, I would just start out by saying that I certainly work in this industry from, from the grower perspective, but I'm also a big consumer of uh, food media. And certainly a couple of things that, that I've noticed are that consumers are definitely looking towards the health attributes of the food. In other words, how nutrient-dense are they? And uh, the other trend would be what I call flexitarian eating, and that is really about putting fruits and vegetables as half of your plate. Of course, CPMA has a very successful half-your-plate program. But flexitarians are those who are choosing to put vegetables at, at the center of the plate and proteins more to the side. I've got a great example because the January 2016 issue of Canadian House and Home just arrived, and here's what caught my eye. There's a recipe for cumin-roasted carrot with farro, kale, and a side of lamb. And for me, that relates to several of the trends which I see ongoing, and that's the roasting of vegetables, the importance of root vegetables, kale and cruciferous vegetables in general, and then vegetables moving to that center plate with meat at the side. And not to forget the dessert side of things, uh, there's another recipe talking about savory ice cream, which incorporates finely diced red beets and mixing that with crumbled goat cheese and putting it into a vanilla ice cream. So very interesting and innovative way of putting a root vegetable into a dessert. That sounds uh, actually delicious. And of course, kale. I mean, we can't leave the conversation without talking about kale. And, and I would add Colette, uh, which is a hybrid of kale and brush sprout. I actually saw my first field of Colette about six weeks ago, instance of where that whole category of cruciferous vegetables has exploded. I would say some of the distributors that I've talked to recently say that kale has actually refocused attention on that whole category and that they've been seeing a swing back to cauliflower and broccoli. You mentioned kale, so I'll ask the question, what is the next kale, but also the key trends that we're going to see around fruit and veg, and potentially then what is the next, call it disruptive force, that we could see in the market? This is Tom again with the Packer, and I was just recalling, and I'm seeing a lot of headlines about ugly produce and, and the fact that consumers are maybe more willing to accept misshapen and not prime condition, at least appearing produce, and I think that might be something to watch as we go forward. There's more of an acceptance of that as a uh, maybe a reaction to the food waste issue. And then also I think the online sales, the delivered food, market is something to watch. I was up talking to a Washington apple shipper, and he, he was remarking about the growing demand from Blue Apron, which is a uh, delivered home meal solution provider.
Matthew Ock here again. I think along similar lines, there's also the paleo diet, which is really taking off. But instead of replacing proteins, uh, replacing carbs, finding ways to use vegetables instead of rice or flour or whatnot. So you're seeing a lot of dishes that are using cauliflower, for example, instead of rice, or even pizza bases, which uh, have part of their flour mixed with cauliflower. So I think that could be a big trend to look out for as well. And Karen James here, Grocery Business. One trend that I'm starting to see is the wide world of flavors that is beyond just spicy, expanding more into the citrus realm. And cuisines that normally would never have been on the radar screen in a larger way, more Middle Eastern, more Vietnamese, Peruvian, alternative cuisines that really harken back to the land and authenticity. And I think that trend seems to be deepening. It's been there, but it seems to be deepening. So, Karen, you feel that the changing cultural mosaic in Canada is a real driver around some of these food trends? I think we're a leader in that way because of the cultural mosaic. That's a very good term. But I don't think we're alone in that. I think the U.S. is getting on board with this, too, and I no discussion of food trends is complete without referring back to millennials. And because of their... Um, access to technology and their omni view of the world, they're very open to these flavors and food companies are scrambling to keep up because no sooner do they develop a new product than the trend is on to something else. So their openness, the millennials' openness to try new things is driving a lot of this innovation. And Karen, just following up on your point, a lot of South Asian immigration to Canada, I would say that Eggplant is a category to watch. I think it's a really a rising star because it's so flexible to cook. You can grill it, stuff it, saute it, roast it. There's a lot of research right here in Ontario in terms of Asian eggplant, both round and long. But there's also more to come on hydroponically grown eggplant. And I know others around the panel have talked about the Canadian greenhouse industry. Well, they have also been very innovative in, in growing uh, various kinds of eggplant. So I would tap that category as one to watch. John Grow here from the Produce News. I just wanted to chime in that something on the food service side that I'm seeing, especially around the New York area, is the root-to-stem philosophy among food service operators and chefs in that they want to use the whole product. And, in fact, they are promoting that more to get an edge on competition maybe or to just let people know that they're maximizing their use of a product and they're coming up with very interesting ways to use some of the formerly byproducts that were just thrown away. So I think that's an interesting. And also I will just say that cauliflower, I've noticed, is becoming more center of the plate, as Karen Davidson mentioned. In fact, I had dinner at a restaurant in New York where I paid $25 for a cauliflower steak. So <laughs> I thought that was uh, kind of interesting. And that's all that we have for you on this podcast, but stay tuned because later this month we will have part two of that conversation. I'd like to thank you for listening and remind you that you can rate, review us on iTunes. You can share our podcast and let other people know about it. If you have a comment or question, you can get a hold of us by emailing podcast at cpma.ca. And the music we have been using on the podcast today is Clap and Yell from bandsound.com. I'd like to thank John Grove, Karen Davidson, Tom Karst, Karen James, Matthew Ock, and Ron Lemaire from CPMA for facilitating the discussion today. Just a reminder, the views expressed by individuals as part of this conversation are their own views and not necessarily the views of CPMA. Until next time, make a healthy choice. Fill half your plate with fruits and veggies.